Hey there, welcome to episode 15 of True Crime Time. I'm Megan, finally recording a regular episode from my new apartment, which is partially true. This is my fifth time trying to record this episode. I've had some technical difficulty. Um, Also, I know I've been missing for a little bit, and I'm very sorry. I was in a car accident in mid-July, which totaled my car and left me with a concussion. And I still have some lingering uh, symptoms of that, which has made putting a new episode together very difficult because concentration has been very painful for me. Um, I also was writing a completely different episode and was in a little over my head for the first time, you know, back with this brain injury. So I shelved that one for now and I'm bringing you something else. I truly appreciate your patience while I take the time to totally heal up. There's a lot of cool things coming down the pipeline, so please continue to stay tuned for exciting things in future episodes. But right now, let's get into the good stuff. It's been a long time. Right after this quick word from our sponsors. I'll see you on the other side. Oh, hey. Welcome back. Um, firstly, you might hear my air conditioner. There's nothing I can do about it. I apologize. Um, in researching this case, I got information from Wikipedia and a documentary on YouTube, which is going to give it all away, if you didn't already know by the title. The documentary was called Israel Keys Documentary. The user was Baffling Documentaries. But when I was doing some fact-checking prior to recording, it looks like this Um, The documentary was actually aired on Oxygen, so that's where it's from. So, getting right into it, Israel Keyes was born in Richmond, Utah in 1978. It's been said that he was homeschooled and generally isolated. He wasn't really socialized properly right from the start. At some point, his parents moved the family to a Washington, um, nope, to Washington State, which, uh, or where his parents were part of a church called the Ark or the Ark Group, which was essentially a racist organization that spouted off about white supremacy. He was surrounded by people from an earliest age who loves to dehumanize other people. Maybe that's not fair to say loves, but white supremacists, you know, who really cares? Uh, Israel himself would say that he grew up around good people, which I guess good being a relative term, and everyone was nice to each other. Um, He said he was not abused or neglected, but I did recognize that early on he had dark urges. He thought everyone was like him and they were either hiding it or they were faking it. It was around the age of 14 that he realized he felt certain things were normal that other people might not. He admitted to torturing animals. On one such occasion, he went into the woods with other kids his age and did something horrible to a cat, which I will not talk about. And then he left. And after he left, he looked at the other kids, thinking they would appreciate what he had done, but they didn't. One of the kids was literally sick on the spot about it. After that incident, he kind of learned to keep those things to himself. According to the documentary I watched, his parents were strict, religious, and humorless, which is probably a blast to grow up with. They also kicked him out when he said he was an atheist, which tracks. Um, 
but he was very clear on that he took responsibility for the choices he made in his life and his parents were not at fault. There are huge gaps of lost time in his life, which will be semi-explained away later as we go. So Israel joined the army in July of 1998 and served both in Fort Hood and Egypt and actually received decorations and awards for the time he served. Other people who served in the army with him described him as pretty quiet. He kept to himself. He was a bit of a drinker and would finish off bottles at a time of whiskey and was also a big fan of the insane clown posse, which I mean, you know. So Israel was discharged in July of 2001 and would go on to open a construction business in Alaska in 2007 called Kia's Construction. You'll notice the time gap in there again. People who knew him at that time would say he was a good contractor, a good worker, he was a decent boyfriend and a great dad. That's right, at this point he had a family. Um, But all of that and the views people had of him would start to change in July of 2012. Um, On February 1st, in Anchorage, Alaska, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig was closing up alone at a drive-up coffee stand. Her boyfriend arrived at the job. He was going to pick her up, but she was not there. He gets home, gets with her dad, and lets him know what happened. A little later in the evening, he got a text from Samantha's phone saying that she was spending a few days with friends, and would he let her dad know. Um, Immediately, he knew that this was not a text that Samantha herself had sent. He just knew that in his gut. And I believe it was the next morning when her father called to report him missing, or her missing. Um, The police began to investigate, and thankfully there was some surveillance footage. At about 8 o'clock, a man came to the window, and it looks like it was kind of business as usual. She made coffee, whatever. At some point in their interaction, Samantha's body language changed to that of, like, fear or nervousness. After that, the man actually jumped in through the window, um, and Samantha kind of goes along with him, as generally, you know, people are taught if you go along, you know, you'll, you might be okay if you do what the people want, but unfortunately, next, he walked her out, and they walked out of frame. A few days later, they get a lead in the form of surveillance footage from a neighboring business, And the good news in the bad news here is that while it did show Samantha leaving with the man, it showed her getting into a white pickup truck, so now at least the authorities had something else to go on. The FBI does get involved, but unfortunately, the investigation stalls out. Something like two and a half weeks after Samantha's abduction, another text is received from Samantha's phone. It named a park, a location in the park, and a really creepy little line that said, Ain't she purdy? course authorities raced over to the location in the park and there's a bulletin board there attached to the bulletin board was a picture of samantha bound with rope on her mouth and a ransom note the ransom note demanded thirty thousand dollars be deposited into samantha's bank account which not trying to rain on anyone's parade here but sounds like a bad idea if you want to not get caught but what do i know um so the fbi and the local authorities worked together with the bank to deposit a portion of the amount demanded, and they waited, and they were set up to be alerted when the card, when Samantha's debit card was used. And it was. 
on three separate occasions the card was used and they would immediately send someone to apprehend the person presumably him um but each time they just they missed unfortunately and just to clarify he had to keep making withdrawals because the debit card has that daily limit on how much can be taken out which i know personally has irritated me in the past but worked out in this scenario to an extent the next withdrawal would be a little surprising because it came from wilcox arizona which is obviously quite a distance from alaska the one after that came from new mexico texas after that and then another town in texas each time a man in a mask made the withdrawal um but they were able to figure out also that he was driving a white ford focus traveling east the driver was eventually pulled over and when asked he handed over his license which was an alaska license found in the car were also clothes matching atm security videos samantha's cell phone and samantha's debit card unfortunately however samantha was still missing the driver was identified as ready you know who it is it's israel keys 34 year old israel keys at this time keys was returned to alaska and questioned by police police initially described him as a clean cut pretty regular guy during their first meeting he did not speak so it was just the lawyer and the police and israel was just quiet Um, so later in the day his lawyer calls after that first meeting and he lets them know that israel is ready to tell them everything but he has a few demands which sounds pretty serious right but he just wanted a cigar and a snickers bar just like i do i don't know i don't like cigars anyway there's a bunch of video of the interviews they had with him the fbi would actually not release the full tapes because they were so graphic with descriptions of the horrible things that had been done they just didn't want them out there in the public the video that you can see though is so chilling i encourage you to check it out on youtube if you are so inclined because this man is saying the most horrible things and then he laughs and it's a sincere laugh which is very disturbing so this is kind of where authorities learn how cold and calculating the person before them was so by key's own account after he abducted samantha he took her to a shed outside of his home that would be his home where his girlfriend and child lived mind you so he was drinking smoking cigars listening to music which he turned up louder so nobody could hear what he was going to do next he sexually assaulted samantha throughout the night also at some point returning to her job to get her cell phone and debit card the next morning unfortunately um, he did kill her stabbing and strangling her um he told the authorities all this information with no remorse he was very calm and a matter of fact and just generally emotionless he then recounted the rest of what happened to samantha and it's rough so just that heads up he claims he rolled her up put her in a box in the shed woke his family up and went on a trip to new orleans came back two and a half weeks later by that time samantha had frozen because of the low temperatures he then thawed her out put makeup on her and braided her hair he put a four-day-old copy of the local newspaper 
next to her body. Does this sound familiar? Because that's when he took the ransom picture that was used on the bulletin board. Now, this is already all terrible, right? But I think this part is especially tragic because the ransom note in the picture are what gave her family and and the people looking for her any hope and to later find out that the picture they saw of her the picture that her father I'm sure saw was a picture where she was already gone and he was manipulating her body in some sort of twisted game and that's just some next level evil shit after he took the picture that he would use later he dismembered Samantha and dumped her in a frozen lake where people were ice fishing. Then he stayed to catch some fish out of the very same lake, which he then took home and ate with his family, as you do. Keyes suggests there are more victims, but is hesitant to talk about them. He actually requested the death penalty prior to agreeing to even talk about any more victims. He also wanted anonymity to protect his daughter so she could live some kind of semblance of a normal life. He claimed he wasn't concerned for his own reputation, but more for his family because they were going to suffer and receive backlash for what he had done. When they basically had a deal, which required more cigars and Snickers bars, and the vague promise of a death penalty execution date, they started getting more information about his life over the last 14 years. He confessed to two more murders, Bill and Lorraine C. in Essex, Vermont. June 9, 2011 is the day that neither of them showed up to their jobs. Their car was found nearby their home, and there was no really sign of struggle inside their home other than a broken window. So Israel said he had staked out the house, which for him had to have certain criteria for him to pick it. So things like no dog, no kids, easy in, easy out. He wanted his crimes and his abductions and murders, I suppose, to be as uncomplicated as possible. He cut the phone lines and waited outside for the neighborhood to fall asleep. He said once he was in the house, he was in the bedroom within seconds and attacked the couple. He then took them to an abandoned farmhouse. He tied Bill's hands. Lorraine actually escaped from the car, but unfortunately Israel caught up with her, claimed to rough her up, those are his words, and then sexually assaulted her. Bill was able to get out of his restraints, but was then shot, and Lorraine was strangled to death. Um, Keyes told the police that he left their bodies in trash bags in the basement, so police went to search the house, but the problem was the house no longer existed. It had been demolished before they had been able to get to it, which is very unfortunate. They then had the horrible task of searching the landfill for their remains of Bill and Lorraine. And it was a huge landfill. They spent a lot of time and resources looking through, but they were unable to locate any remains. The best the authorities could do is bring in a cadaver dog to where the basement had stood and the dog alerted, which means... It's a positive indication that remains had been there before. So that was the most that they could provide the family, which is tragic. 
Um, from there, information slowed. They got small bursts of information from keys that ranged from arsons of burglaries and bank robberies. But he became less cooperative as time went on. He kept pressing for a death date, but was seemingly ignorant to a point about the legal process that has to be followed in order to carry out a death sentence. But authorities tried to use this to their advantage, um, his ignorance, basically. So they would dangle it in front of them, uh, in front of him to get more information. But he would only talk exactly when he wanted about what he wanted. He kind of was wising up to their tricks. Um, they did get some information about some other incidents. They believe the first incident was in Oregon or Oregon, depending on where you live in the U.S. Um, 1997, he staked out where a good place would be to take a victim. He found a wooded area. There were trails and hikers. He basically separated someone out from her group like he was hunting. He took her to the outhouse and sexually assaulted her. He had plans to kill her from the outset, but he admitted that she was pretty smart. She didn't fight him. She tried to speak with him generally normally, saying, you know, she wasn't sure why he was doing that. She probably would have dated him, you know, in regular life or whatever. Um, but because of that, and because she was able to, like, humanize herself, he said he lost his nerve before he could do anything else, and he let her go. One of the things that makes Israel Keys an interesting case study is that he had kill kits stashed all over the country, which is something that sets him apart from other killers. He would bury kits in like buckets or just kind of wrapped up in different locations, and they included things like duct tape, shovels, guns, rope, Drano, etc. Um, so for everything he wanted, for capture, for killing, for disposing of bodies. He said there were probably 12 kids stashed all over the country. So that's pretty interesting when you think about it. Um, when he was talking about these kids with police, he said as a kid he always dreamed of buried treasure, so he might as well create it. And then he laughed like a creep. Um, they indicate these kids such a level of planning so it's a very high level he had some buried for several years before he used them and he created these kits so he wouldn't have to travel with any kind of evidence which i guess i will begrudgingly admit is smart but that's what he would do he would travel with a specific intent to commit horrible crimes so he would have the forethought to just go ahead and make it easier for himself when he decided to do those things go dig up what he had buried and then do whatever horrible thing he decided he was going to do so that's gross but interesting so according to experts this kind of meticulous planning is atypical they kept throwing around the word in the documentary or the term delayed gratification saying delayed gratification is not the standard in this kind of scenario for this kind of person or a killer but you have to imagine to an extent that knowing they were there ready to use was gratifying in its own way to an extent israel's known and confirmed victim count is three but authorities are sure there are more 
Israel was outed by the news media in Vermont as a killer and became very upset because that was one of his conditions. He was not to be made public. He wanted to be anonymous. After he was told his name was leaked, he shut down. They tried to rebuild rapport with him, but they kind of lost the power they had initially had. And they used different strategies just to kind of get any kind of foot in the door. And eventually he kind of started dropping some hints again, but he wouldn't confirm any details. Like, there may have been another murder before he moved to Washington State, but Keyes refused to name names and he was not giving any kind of information chronologically. So that's why, (coughs) excuse me, that's why there's all these gaps um, in the timeline is because they were trying to get this information from him. He just wouldn't give it. So everything was all over the place. They had ideas. They had things they thought he had done. But without him giving any information, there was nowhere to tie him to it. One of the things I thought was funny about these tapes, at one point, Keyes is quoted as saying, The more my name is attached to this, the more likely somebody is going to try to do some true crime bullshit. Well, guess what, you bastard? Welcome to True Crime Time. A true crime podcast. Spring of 2009, he traveled to the East Coast. He said he was visiting family, which was a lie. Um, but another thing that's so interesting, I think I just mentioned a minute ago, he traveled the United States specifically intending to commit murder. That was his plan, or arson, or rob a bank, or whatever he wanted to do. He would fly somewhere. He would rent a car, then still drive hundreds of miles away for this purpose and to cover his tracks. Allegedly, on this trip, he also committed a homicide. Again, that's the spring of 2009. So, someone, a woman named Deborah Feldman, had gone missing. It didn't receive a lot of media attention. Um, Authorities referred to her as someone who lived like high risk lifestyle, which is nonsense because it doesn't mean that she doesn't deserve media attention or to be found but when they searched Israel's computer they found her name in his computer he had searched her name he also admitted to robbing a bank in the area where Deborah disappeared from around the same time so they suspect that he had something to do with that but he wouldn't talk about her and they have no way to connect them um All the experts were saying he was successful because he knew how to avoid getting caught. The only reason they recovered Samantha, who was the only victim recovered, is because he told them where to find her. So he was good at not leaving evidence. From 2009 to 2012, his crimes became closer together and also closer to home. In the area of Earthquake Park, he had intended to shoot a couple, and when asked why he picked them, he said it was just random. He wound up not shooting anyone that day and went home, but he was becoming more confident. And as he was becoming more confident, we know what happens at this point, right? They make mistakes. His mistakes with Samantha are what got him caught, using her debit card, being on camera. Those are all things that are able to be tracked, right? So he stopped speaking with authorities for several weeks at a time towards the end. And in fall 2012, the FBI had interviewed him 25 times in eight months. They 
were basically walking on eggshells around him because they didn't want him to completely shut down. They felt like they were just kind of wedging the door back open, right? But he continued to ask for the death penalty, and they kind of went back and forth with that game again. So the FBI got Keyes to agree to admit to helping them recover kill kits by Google Maps and drones. Two days after agreeing to cooperate, he committed suicide by slashing his wrists and hanging himself because he is a coward. He left a note that contained, not like a manifesto, but just like bullshit that horrible people say, and some awful poetry. Um, It's not really anything that's relevant in terms of There's no clues. There's nothing else that's going to help solve anything. So I'm not going to bother to repeat any of it because that's probably what he would have wanted. Aside from not being part of this true crime bullshit, of course. The unfortunate thing that comes out of his death is that there is nothing else to connect him to other various cases. I mentioned that a few times, but that's the biggest tragedy from his death, right? Because it's basically a guarantee that he committed other murders. There are so many gaps in his life and his timeline. But as his final fuck you to society, he took all the other information to the grave. Here I wrote, what a dirty bag. I assume I write, I meant to write dirt bag. We'll take a dirty bag too, that's fine. So that is the waste of life we know as Israel Keys. There's obviously more information out there. There's more comprehensive articles. Um, I did not get every little detail. I wanted to take as much of this from like his own words as possible. So if you're interested, there's plenty of other resources and documentaries. Um, also, I want to remind you guys to come follow True Crime Time on Instagram and please rate, review, and subscribe if you like this podcast. Also, I've been getting some great stories. Truly, like, hauntings, ghost stories, things that, how your dad worked with a serial killer at, I forget where my friend said. Anyway, keep sending your stories. True Crime Time Podcast at gmail.com. Send it in. I'll check it out. If it's great and you don't mind, could share it on a future episode. Otherwise, don't be a dirty bag. Unlock your doors and windows.